you're just joining us, this is Backstory, and today we're unpacking the complicated history of U.S.-China relations. Now, last month's state dinner at the White House was President Xi's first, but it wouldn't have been possible without another first, President Richard Nixon's state visit to China in 1972. Just a year before, the idea of an American president setting foot in communist China would have been unthinkable. The two countries were bitter Cold War foes. But Chinese leader Mao Zedong and President Nixon separately realized that they had a common enemy in the Soviet Union. Because the U.S. didn't recognize the People's Republic of China, the leaders had no obvious way to communicate. Author Nicholas Griffin wrote a book about this quandary. He says Nixon's national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, began by approaching neutral countries. And sure enough, a month later, a handwritten note arrives from China through the Pakistani ambassador and is delivered straight to Nixon and to Kissinger. So he, he's like carrying a briefcase with this note and, you know, just takes it out and says, don't tell anybody about this, but yeah, I, I've, got a, I've got a note for you. It's a handwritten note. It has. It's not on any stationery. And, you know, you have to take the Pakistani ambassador's word that that's actually the hand of Joe right. and Lai, the, the Chinese premier. But so that's how the Americans reply in a so similar manner, not on official stationery. These, these notes are traveling through Pakistani diplomatic baggage. You know, they don't get there for a couple of weeks. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but this thing takes place very, very slowly and, and, and tentatively. So was there one moment in all of this that you'd identify as a real breakthrough? Well, there's sort of one moment where, where it sort of forced the breakthrough. They, they start doing this sort of slow motion dance of like, I'll do this and then we'll see what your signal is. Mm-hmm. And this was all going well back and forth until they made their move that we didn't catch. Uh, what Mao had done was he'd stuck an American journalist called Edgar Snow uh, by his side during one of their great parades. And he thought that was a very obvious signal to America that things were rolling along nicely in this in this flirtation. But of course, Edgar Snow was a very left-wing journalist. And <laughs> Mao had always presumed he must be secretly working for the CIA. But of course, to Kissinger and Nixon, he was this sort of raving lefty uh, who they didn't right, trust so they at all. Right, so they misread the signal. Yeah, so we didn't think of that as, as their signal. So uh-huh. there we are waiting for their signal. They'd made it, and we didn't get it. And we sort of lapsed back into silence. You know, Nick, this is beginning to sound like a lot of dances that I went to as a teenager. <laughs> You're probably right. Okay. So signals sent, signals missed. Uh, what's the signal that is unmissable? Well, I think that's that's the question the Chinese ask themselves. How can we come up with something so blindingly obvious? For these dumb Americans. For these dumb Americans that everyone's going to get it. And not just Kissinger and Nixon, but the entire of America is now going to get it. It's going to be that obvious. They decided to choose the support of ping pong. So how did they go about orchestrating that? Or did they orchestrate it? Was it just an accident? What they had done was that there was going to be a world championships of table tennis in Japan. Now, of course, China didn't have diplomatic relations with Japan either. So they very quickly uh, had to approach the Japanese sporting authorities and government and ask if they could be included as a last-minute team. And the idea was to have the Chinese table tennis team approach the American table tennis team, which was the strangest collection of this broad section of America. So it had everything from you know, high school girls 
to uh, a black immigrant from Guyana who worked in the United Nations, to a hippie, Glenn Cowan. He, he, you know, the guy was 19 years old, had sort of long brown hair and wore tie-dye bell-bottom trousers. <laughs> it couldn't have been a greater, greater difference between the two teams. You know, there was the Chinese team who were, were sort of basically lived in, in, in an enclosed sphere in Beijing and all they did was play table tennis and study Mao's thoughts. And, and then here this come the Americans. mixture in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So there they are in Japan now. It's what, 1970 now? It's 1971. 1971. So what happens there in Japan? Well, the Americans sort of going about their business of they're not a very good table tennis team and they're, they're losing <laughs> you know, very quickly in the world championships as the Chinese who've now returned to the sport are rolling on uh, as they always did. And then there's a very odd incident where Glenn Cowan, the American hippie, misses the team bus and he's sort of hanging back and and he he comes out of a training session and there's a bus waiting there and the people on it wave him on he goes on and who is it it's the chinese team's bus so there he is the, the first american in 20 24 years to be dealing with a chinese delegation and, and what an american to be dealing with of him. all the americans yeah what, what, <laughs> it's a 19 year old californian hippie so what did he say far out <laughs> Pretty much, he he sort of made sort of revolutionary overtures, as one would. That, you know, <laughs> you know, there are people who believe in revolution in our country too. This was this is California, nineteen early nineteen seventies. You bet. Right. Uh, and you know, who comes to greet him from the back of the bus? But the greatest table tennis te- player of all time, a man called Chuang Sedong, who is very much working hand in hand, you know, with with his sporting authority and the government, and he gives Cowan this this elaborate present. Now, no one gave anyone presents. At a sporting level, you're only allowed to give tiny pins to one another. So the fact that he gave him this silk screen of mountains was... You which know, he just happened to have on which him. Which he just happened to have on him. So this is a, you know, this is a moment that, that had been highly orchestrated by the Chinese right. to look spontaneous. Right. And sure enough, the American ping pong team was invited immediately to Beijing. On the spot. On the spot. And they left within... They left Japan within 48 hours and landed for this remarkable week uh, that's known as ping-pong diplomacy. Good evening. The bamboo curtain has been cracked by a ping-pong ball. For some time, there have been indications of a potential thaw in the more than two decades of... And were the diplomats back in the United States a little worried about this? Did they... Were they concerned (laughs) that this was some kind of setup? They were very worried, but they understood, Kissinger and Nixon understood immediately that this this obviously had nothing to do with ping pong and everything to do with geopolitics. Uh-huh. The big worry was, who are these people who are representing America? You know, there were some very odd moments. Cowan the hippie thought, well, surely if it's a communist country, I can pretty much use whatever I want. So he went out one morning at four and just stole a bicycle thinking, you know, every bicycle is a bicycle, right? And suddenly it's he was owned being, by the people. Yeah, he was being sort of followed down the street by sort of a mob, mob of Chinese. Uh, Cowan undoubtedly carried drugs into the into communist China, which really? was a mixture of marijuana and hallucinogens. Mm, interesting. You know, it was a very bizarre time. But the number one thing was that the Chinese weren't going to let anything happen to the Americans. And the idea was to get through this week because what happened, what the brilliance of using something cultural in a circumstance like that is it carried with it and or rather changed 
what the people of the respective countries thought of one another. Right. So if you look at opinion polls at the end of, of 1970, that's still very much against the Red Chinese. They basically hadn't budged. But suddenly, in the spring of 71, the Chinese are humanized uh, through ping pong and their good treatment of the American team. And you suddenly get uh, a majority of Americans who want to invite Red China into the United Nations. And how does this lead to Nixon's famous uh, trip to China in 1972? It all happens very quickly. So you get you get the spring of 71 is when the ping pong team arrive. By July, you have Kissinger going on his secret mission uh, to figure out if the Chinese would like to invite Nixon. Uh, and Nixon Nixon arrives uh, in February the uh, in the next year. So it's really one, two, three. I think from a Chinese point of view, it's fantastic. If you think of any negotiation, the first thing you want to secure is home court advantage. Yes. The Chinese did that with the ping pong team. They did it with the arrival of Kissinger. And then they did it again when Nixon arrived. Do you play ping pong? Uh, I play a little. <laughs> I'm not particularly good. Is there anything about the game itself that you think lends itself to diplomacy. I understand now uh, that there was this long history of the internationalization of the sport that allowed the Chinese to get involved. But what about the game itself? Is Do you think it's particularly conducive to diplomacy? I think, well, I mean, I'll tell you what the, the, the experts will tell you, that it's actually, it sets off the same part of the brain as chess does, which is uh, your strategy and diplomacy. But the difference is, of course, that the, the ball's coming towards you at 70 miles an hour uh, again and again and again. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking on your feet. Uh, the other big difference is, of course, you, how close you are to your opponent. It's remarkably close. So you can actually read you know, human emotions on, on your opponent's face. So Absolutely. And and that net can look awfully low, especially <laughs> against a good opponent. Especially after a beer or two, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. Thank today. you so much for having me. Nicholas Griffin is the author of Ping Pong Diplomacy, the secret history behind the game that changed the world. Even after Richard Nixon resigned from office in 1974, he took several more trips to China to cement economic ties. We wanted to end the show today in the streets of Shanghai to hear from Chinese citizens who remember Nixon in his first historic visit. We knew about it in the village. It was a big deal. Everyone in the country listened to the radio, the National People's Radio. Back then, we were a closed society. We didn't know about foreigners. If we saw one, it was like seeing an exotic animal. Nixon the person didn't leave much of an impression on Chinese, but his actions affected us greatly. We thought Nixon was a great man for coming to China and allowing the U.S. and China to be able to communicate. I think he is one of America's greatest politicians. He was like the first person who dared to eat a crab. He was so brave to come to China and build relations between the two countries. Chinese people won't forget this. These were the voices of Ching Yi, Yao Jintao, and Wang Rei Shang on the streets of Shanghai. Thanks to reporter and translator Rebecca Canther in Shanghai for that snapshot. 
Sipping Perrier, playing ping pong, moving up the range, y'all aiming.